Okay, go ahead. Go ahead with what, Kristen? Talk, Barry. I'm going to talk like this the entire time. <laughs> oh, dear God. No. I hope not. Please no, don't. No, I don't plan. I plan on talking like this. Is this a good talking uh, volume? Volume. The voluminous nature of my voice. Voluminous. Voluminous. I don't know. Stop it. Let's listen to Bio-voluminous. it. Bio-voluminous. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> the nagging. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Nagging Naturalist Podcast, a podcast all about wildlife. As you might have noticed, I am not the Nagging Naturalist. I am the one who nags the Nagging Naturalist. I am Barry, and I'll be your host, but Kristen is standing by to ensure I stay relatively on task. My opinions are definitely my own, and I do not speak for or on behalf of any organization, facility, or institute mentioned in this episode. So, Kristen, since this is part of a larger theme for the month of May, why don't you fill them in on the habitat and genus that we'll be talking about today? <laughs> Thanks, Barry. So, this month we've been covering the Zambezian flooded grasslands, which is a special uh, broken-up habitat that's found in the southern regions of sub-Saharan Africa. Today, we are going to be discussing the genus Glossina, at least I think that's how it's pronounced, uh, and this is actually the group known as the Setsi flies. Um, so, Barry, how are we doing this? All right. Well, if this is your first time uh, with the podcast, then welcome. But if not, then you're familiar with the format that uh, the Nagging Naturalist, or otherwise known as Kristen, normally follows. <laughs> so first, we're going to start out with some natural history. Uh, and we're going to do that with taxonomy. So this is part of the kingdom Animalia. The phylum is Arthropoda. The class is Insecta. The so the insects. Yes, the insects. Which most of us are familiar with. Uh, order Diptera. The flies. Family Glossinidae. More specific flies. <laughs> More specific flies. <laughs> and the genus Glossina, which has 33 species and subspecies. Um, and those are the, the tsetse flies. Um, they are pretty small. I mean, they're kind of the size of your regular housefly. So they are 8 to 17 millimeters long, which equates to about a third to two-thirds of an inch. That's really small. Yeah, that's, that's like small. my pinky fingernail. Uh, your pinky fingernail sizes may vary, uh, our <laughs> trusted listeners. But uh, yes, it's, it's pretty small. So... Their appearance, they look like houseflies, but they have some distinct features. First is while resting, their wings actually fold uh, completely over top of one another. So one uh, blocks the other one out. That kind of reminds me of like how you distinguish dragonflies and damselflies. How dragonflies leave their wings out, but damselflies fold their wings along their body. So it's like flush with their body. Mm -hmm. So with houseflies, they just, like, have their wings rest, but these guys actually, like, fold it overlapping. Yeah, they fold it overlapping, so one completely is sitting on top of the other. Fascinating. And then if you actually look at the wings, the middle cell of the uh, wing membrane looks like a hatchet or a cleaver. It kind of has an outline that's similar to, like, what a hatchet looks like. Because they're butchers. <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, Did you write of instead of or in your notes? 
I don't have notes, Kristen. I'm going <laughs> all off the top of my head. <laughs> they also have a long proboscis, uh, which extends directly forward and is attached to a distinct bulb at the bottom of their head. And their antenna have arista, which is a thick bristle, which have hairs branching off of them and smaller hairs branching off of those hairs. So it kind of looks like the thing that we use to scrub our dishes with. It's got the long handle, and then at the end it's like, with all the different sized silicone Yes. (laughs) No. (laughs) Those aren't bottle cleaners attached to these flies? I'm squinting really hard right now trying to think about whether or not this is similar. (laughs) Sorry. I I don't think it is. Okay, that's fair. Um, When I looked it up, it looks more like... You know, I actually haven't seen a picture key pass through my phone. Where is it? It's it's tucked under that blanket. Oh, I see. I actually haven't seen a picture of the animal we're discussing, and normally I do that, so I have, like, an idea of what we're talking about. So let me... uh... You said there was a specific... Specific species that you. Um, so we can go ahead into us. that uh, here in just a couple of sections, but uh, we're basically looking at Glossina, the genus Glossina at large, um, because all Glossina are uh, Sitsi flies or Setsi flies. Mm-hmm. Um, they just have different regions. So there are some that are more particular to the Zambesian flooded grasslands than others, mm. uh, but they all have, uh, a, they, they all fall under the same things as far as like appearance. So actually the, the best picture, if you go to the Wikipedia page for them, uh, they actually have pictures that are zoomed in, I think, or actually no, uh, go to, uh, Type in Arista, which is A-R-I-S-T-A. And then go to images. Images. Jinx. And if you look at that, um, actually, there was another one where it puts it right next to... Yeah, that one, it bisects a real... I feel so bad. Everybody's listening, and they're like, we don't know clue what y'all are looking at. So, if (laughs) y'all go to your favorite search engine... And you type in uh, Sitsi fly, which is spelled T-S-E, T-S-E, one word, fly, Arista, A-R-I-S-T-A, and then go to images or images. Um, there is a there is a picture of uh, what Arista looks like. I don't so. even remember why we started saying it that way, but it stuck. So the range of Sitsi flies is let's see did we agree that saying fly afterwards was redundant uh we haven't discussed that here sorry um Kristen looked up something and uh I guess I I didn't spend too much time in investing uh research into it but there was something that said that in uh Bantu languages that yeah within the Bantu language that uh Sitsi is actually how you say fly uh, the animal, so fly, fly. Yeah, it's could be redundant. Kind desert, of like, desert. Yeah, Sahara Desert in in Arabic, the word Sahara is desert. So uh, that's where you get Sahara from. And saying uh, Sahara Desert is actually redundant because it is saying desert, <laughs> desert, which is why they often just say the Sahara, which just means the desert. 
Um, so these are just sitsies. Yes. These are just sitsies. But I will probably continue to say sitsy fly because I've already started. <laughs> but their range, all but two of the 33 species and subspecies are found in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, though each taxon is restricted to a relatively specific habitat. And if you listen to my Saddle Bill Stork episode, I actually say what sub-Saharan Africa means and what it covers, because that is a very general and broad space. It's not a... Sub-Saharan Africa isn't small. It's like two-thirds of Africa. So, uh, yeah, that's a that's a huge range. That's, that's more than North... Well, no, that's more than the U.S. at least, because the U.S. doesn't even fill a full third of Africa. Africa's big, y'all. It's huge. This goes back to a question that you asked earlier. Uh, so, habitats. There is a preference of savanna, forest, and riverine, depending on the subgenus of Glossina. The subgenera... Is that how you say it? Subgenera? Subgenera? I, I, I say genera, but, I mean, say what you want, man. The subgenera most associated with the Zambezian flooded grasslands are most likely the morsitans, who are found in the savanna, and the papalis, who are found along rivers. And the river, the papalis ones, really, they're just everywhere rivers are, so they cut through sections of the savanna, and so it's really hard to say which one of these is is better, but one of those two uh, genuses or subgenuses. Well, one, of the reasons, <laughs> one of the reasons why it's called flooded grasslands is because it does seasonally flood. It's rare. There are some parts of the Zambezian flooded grasslands that are permanently waterlogged, but for the most part, it's a seasonal flooding. So most likely, based on habitat preference, the savannas are probably more common, and it might be that the riverine ones show up during certain part of the seasons because water's arrived, but might not be present year-round. I don't know. Depends on how long their life is, I guess. But cool. We're about to get into how long their life is. But first, we're going to take a detour into diet and reproduction together. Diet! Yeah. Diet and reproduction we'll discuss together because you see, female CT flies do not lay eggs, but rather produce larvae one at a time through a process called adenotrophic viviparity. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Well, you got, you definitely got viviparity right, because I've said that. Adenotrophic? Adenotrophic. Yeah, that sounds right. I feel so, like I've heard that before. Through, through adenotrophic viviparity, the egg is fertilized and develops inside of the female. She carries it for between 9 to 10 days until it reaches its third instar. So this thing is actually going through instars Whoa. inside of the... the fly. And if you're not familiar with instars, they're kind of like stages, so like... When you see caterpillars, caterpillars go through instars. They start off very tiny when they hatch out of the eggs, but in order to grow, they essentially molt their skin. Because remember, insects have a slightly hardened outside, and even though caterpillars are very squishy boys, they still go through the same adaptation of molting to get bigger. So they'll go through several instars, molting and getting bigger, and these guys are doing this inside their mothers. Right, so I don't know exactly whether or not they molt or not mm -hmm. or whether that is kind of recycled into the uh that's fair the mother's body but 
The egg is fertilized and develops inside of the female, and she carries it for 9 to 10 days until it reaches its third instar, all the while being felled, uh, fed by a milky material produced by the reproductive gland of the mother. Aw, oh, she has milk for her babies. Uh, milky substance. I'm not sure if it actually qualifies well, as milk, I mean, but... Arguably, only mammals have true milk, but we do have, I mean, cockroaches have quote-unquote milk. I'm, I'm sure this is, might be something related. It's basically meant to be like, it's saying they're producing something that's nutritious for the babies to right. help them grow. Absolutely. Milk. The mother's first mature offspring is produced when that female is between 16 and 17 days old. Oh. With additional offspring being produced approximately every 9 to 10 days after that. So... Uh, mom is born, she gets to about 16, 17, has her first kid. Not gets knocked up, but has her first kid by then. And then every 9 to 10 days after that first kid, she's having another single larva. Wait, you said knock, not knocked up. Is it sexual reproduction, or are they also Did I say not knocked up? I, sorry. Did you say that? I'm, I may have misheard you. So we're going to delete this entire section in post. <laughs> no, we're not. Um, sorry, so you said the mom mother is born. And she gets knocked up after she gets a knocked over up two at weeks. some point. Okay. By the time sixteen or seventeen days is rolled around, she's having her first uh, kid. Okay. Every nine to ten days after that, she's having another one, but they're one at a time. They're one. So here, is one she here, constantly mating, or is it one of those things so, where they store sperm? I'm actually about to tell you. Oh, okay. Uh, I should note <laughs> right here. <laughs> Uh, that females only mate once in their life, after which uh, they produce all the children that they're going to have with that one-time sexual encounter. That's that's interesting because, you know, a lot of animals benefit from having multiple mates and having, like, genetic diversity. It's what can make a population very healthy. Now, granted, I mean, we see monogamy in other animals yeah, where I an animal mates with one partner constantly, so all their young are technically just from the two parents, but it's just, it's not common in insects. Well, let me just be clear. I'm not, there was not a lot of information on exactly how the breeding occurs. Okay. There was simply information about how reproduction happens in the sense of how the larva is formed. Oh, so, so I don't know if there is, I, I highly doubt that this is some monogamous relationship. However. Yeah, I wasn't saying monogamous. I'm just saying like. Well, you did use it, the word monogamy. Well, I, I used it because that was an example of why mammals might have only one mate is because of monogamy. But you're saying they only mate once. Is it that they only mate with one partner, or is that that they only go they through only one need, breeding period? They only need one sexual encounter to have all the children that they're going to have. That, that's what I'm saying, though, is that, like, they all one, like, daddy's babies, baby daddies, you know, it just... I have no idea about what the male's doing, in, <laughs> or how many males are doing it. Oh, no. I just, I, I find that interesting, you know, yeah. and... I'm sorry, that is a gap in this information that I could not find more about, and maybe there is information out there, or maybe just no one seems to care. And that, Well, that's interesting, because my impression was that these animals are very well studied because of all the issues that they cause, so I thought that maybe they'd oh. have more... Yes, they, they are. <laughs> you would think that someone would have written something about this. They talk about them being uh, laboratory bred in some of the things I've read, but they didn't decide it was worth mentioning exactly how the reproduction of these works, simply that 
I only found one resource that said the the female only uh, mates, mates once. once. Okay. And right, beyond enough. that, I mean, I feel like this entire section about reproduction is very long winded. Now I thought it was going to be a lot quicker. Well, um, I mean. I have questions, sir. Sure. No, it's You're fine. You're my teacher right now. Yeah. You're teaching me about this fly that I don't know anything about. This is true. I've kept all the information uh, mostly a secret from uh, Kristen so that she can have truly authentic uh, reactions and questions. Yeah, so, Barry's my naturalist today. <laughs> a title on loan, I assure you. But oh, no. uh, so once those females have mated... Uh, they go on to produce as many offspring as they're going to. In the wild, females tend to produce an average of two offspring that reach reproduction themselves. They go on to reproduce themselves. Okay, so like other ones may not survive or get eaten and right. stuff like that. But they will produce a new offspring every nine to ten days, whether or not that offspring survives. Uh, but let's go back to that third instar larva. So after it's deposited, usually in moist so soil, <laughs> usually in moist soil <laughs> or a shaded, sandy area, it burrows into the ground and turns into a pupa. It emerges about 30 days later as an adult fly. And so the entire time it's not eating. It's just surviving on what mom gave it while it's uh, pupating. So mama gave it a bunch of good food and it just like... I wonder if it just doesn't even goes metastasize it until it turns into a pupa. Yeah. So, it, yeah, basically, I don't know if it goes into a food coma, but it once it gets dropped off, mom drops it off in a location, it burrows into the ground, and then it arrived, or emerges 30 days later as an adult uh, tsetse fly. And all adult flies, all these adult tsetse flies, are uh, hematophagic, hematophagus. Uh, or blood eating. <laughs> that was one of the few things I actually knew about these guys before coming into this. Yeah. Now, as far as their lifespan, they can actually live for several months. Oh, that's so it's it's quite a bad. while for yeah for, for a, a true fly. fly. Yeah. True. True story. So I think that's actually uh, uh, the bulk of uh, the the information for this. So now. We're going to go into... Oh, you would think, but you Barry, would think. I'm here asking the questions. Kristen's here. Don't get ahead of yourself. So, the environmental value of tsetse flies, or just tsetse. <laughs> so, they are prey for a number of different creatures. Cool. They are... So, the, the morning bee fly... Let me say it again. The morning bee fly... Not morning as in dawn, morning as in sadness. Yes. Uh, Exhalanthrax lugans. And the abrupt bee fly, Exhalanthrax abruptus, both parasitize tsetse fly pupae. Ooh, I guess that's why some of them don't survive. Right. Uh, additional predators include robber flies, wasps, and spiders, which feed on adult tsetse flies, though I did not find specific species of those. Um... Robber flies are scary. Do you remember that one we saw in Arizona? I still have nightmares about it. We went to Walnut Canyon, and I have a picture of one resting on like one of the cactus cacti, and it's it was huge. It was it was. I can't remember if it was as big as a horse as the horse flies we see around here, but it was pretty big. And we looked and we like 
I popped it on iNaturalist and later on it's like, oh, it's a type of robber fly. Like, that animal gave me nightmares. So I'm not surprised to hear that something as scary and as horrifying as the CC fly is eaten by robber flies. Mm-hmm. Uh, additionally, CC flies may be a source of invasive species control. Uh, CC flies carry, or CC fly species carry uh, trypanosomes, which are a type of protozoa. I should have pulled up some notes for that to be able to explain that a little better. <laughs> right, so inside of the CC fly exists another extremely tiny organism uh, called trypanosomes. And some types of trypanosomes can cause trypanosomiasis. Trypanosomiasis? You're saying it wrong, so now in my head it's wrong, and I'm not going to be able to say it right. I think it's uh, trypanosomiasis. Trypanosomiasis. We're going with it. (laughs) Trypanosomes, some can cause trypanosomiasis, or commonly known as sleeping sickness, when transmitted to mammals. Indigenous mammals have a resistance to this in sub-Saharan Africa that protects them, but invasive species might not. So this was something that was brought up in one of the the research papers I read, uh, which was arguing for we'll get into it in the the conservation section, but arguing for why CT flies, um, which cause sleeping sickness and are, because they cause sleeping sickness, CT flies are part of eradication projects by groups in Africa to try and get rid of them. Yes. Um, It's a huge initiative. It's been going on for a long time. Um, but they were arguing for some reasons why the CT fly should like continue to, at least in some pockets, continue to exist. Well, yeah, I mean, every animal that exists naturally in the wild has a role to play. It feeds things, it feeds on things, it contributes something. So, I mean, as much, like I've said this before, as much as people hate mosquitoes, mosquitoes belong in the environment. Like, it's fine if we're trying to reduce their impact on human health people you know in in a perfect world we would live in balance where these animals can harm us and they would be allowed to exist and perform their roles without hurting people you know that's always a good goal like we should be protecting the health and safety of people in african nations who are affected by the cc fly and potentially sleeping sickness but it is it does still exist for a reason and fully removing it from the environment might have terrible repercussions that people can't measure currently because we haven't eradicated them. Right. So they they were arguing that the CT fly may be some form of invasive species control because if an invasive species that doesn't have a resistance to uh, the bad, the, the, the severe effects of sleeping sickness try Ah. to come into the area, they will die off. But you said it was specifically mammals though. It, yeah, this is this is specifically focused on mammals. CT flies bite um, mammals for blood, whether it's humans or cattle. So or... if like rats get introduced or something like that, CT flies may help protect them from becoming a problem. Yeah, it, it was kind of up in the air in this this research, but it was okay. put out there as a possibility. Um, I should note that while 
they do carry CT flies do carry uh, trypanosomes, and some trypanosomes cause. <laughs> Why did you look at me like that? Because you just told me how to say it, and I'm already forgetting it. Trypanosomiasis. My. Trypanosomiasis. Um, high eye. High eye. High eye. Not low eye. Trypanosomiasis. Uh, it is noted that only about one in 1,000 flies carry the disease-causing protozoa. So if you get bit by a fly in sub-Saharan Africa, it's not an I now have sleeping sickness. I'm going to get sleeping sickness. It's There's a probability huh. uh, to take into account. So moving on to social value. As we've just discussed, uh, the flies are generally viewed negatively by societies in the area, given their inclination for biting people and cattle and being a vector for potential illness. Yeah, I mean, there uh, there are numerous people in Africa whose livelihood is based around farming and especially the ownership of livestock. So, yeah, I can definitely see how this would be devastating. I mean, what uh, what is it, the... Uh... The Maasai are have a very strongly like cattle based economy, essentially, like people keep and raise their cattle. It's their livelihood. It's what helps uh, their economy. Because um, I think it was them or maybe it was another group that when 9-11 happened, they actually sent cattle to the U.S. government as like a like, you know, we're so, so sorry for what happened. You know, here is like some of our herd like it was, it was them or another group. Somebody sent us cattle because it means so much to them so yeah i could see the i could see this fly being a really big problem for people especially if it specifically affects mammals a lot of livestock is mammalian it's cows it's goats it's sheep right and those those cattle aren't those indigenous mammals that we're talking about those are domesticated yep. to some extent so they are not going to have resistances to these and this actually if you had something to add i was gonna say to be fair the cattle that are raised in africa and asia are a lot more closely related to the wild species than what we raise we've definitely bred and altered our cattle in western cultures like europe and the u.s to a much larger degree um a lot of the cattle that exist in Africa are actually a lot more close, closely related to their uh, wild uh, counterparts. And this is fun fact. This is why some people who move to Western countries from non-Western countries have uh, an issue with digesting Western milk because of how different our cows are from cows in Asia and Africa. The milk's completely different and it's not always digestible to people. It actually makes some people sick to drink our milk. Fun fact. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's fine. <laughs> um, but we're, we're now going to talk about economic value. And so the biggest economic value the, CT, the CT's impact is probably economic loss. So yep. <laughs> as, of, as of 2005, it was estimated that losses due to trypanosomiasis in cattle were around four and a half billion dollars u.s dollars per year with approximately three million cattle deaths jeez that's 
Wow. That's a lot. Right. So uh, regardless of whether they're more closely related to their ancestors or not, I guess they didn't have, not enough of them have uh, some kind of resistance to uh, the trypanosomiasis uh, severe effects to survive oh, it. Oh, babies. See, and I feel like the ones that we have altered so much away from, you know, uh, more wild cow species or at least more wild bovid species would would potentially be more sensitive because you would think that some of these cattle having uh, a, a much more closer relationship to the wild animals that have been exposed to tsetses for you know a lot most of their evolution would have an easier time handling them than let's say a cow from the u.s that comes from stock that probably hasn't experienced something like a tsetse fly in centuries at the very least thousands of years possibly i mean that's that's wild yeah and uh should i be talking at all about what sleeping sickness does uh, i know that's not specifically i i think it's worth mentioning because i mean it's deadly right if you right. if you don't treat it sleeping sickness will kill you so yeah so there, there's a problem uh, death is a problem, but <laughs> just so a little. There, one. There's a problem with treating sleeping sickness because, okay, so you get bit by one of these tsetse uh, that actually have the right uh, protozoa that have the right protozoa. You get the disease. Initially, the the symptoms are like a headache and like mild things that could be anything. Oh, um, that's but, really hard to pinpoint. But you have to get treated early for the the medicine to really be effective and the medicine itself is a little bit riskier at least the the ones that they had been using for a while i don't know if it's risky really, in the sense of the symptoms of the medication like they need bad. to be administered in a very particular way oh. um, now they were talking about some changes to the medicine over time but i don't have a lot of information on that so i apologize but once enough time goes by the disease can get into the nervous system Ooh. and then you start having confusion in the patient and uh irritability and things like that yeah neurological changes are much harder to recover from and if you don't take medicine you can be dead within six months Ooh. so uh there's yeah and we can actually talk about i don't know if you want to but there was uh, something else that I was reading. There was something else I was reading, and it wasn't specifically about uh, Tsetse mm -hmm. being uh, believed to be vampires, <laughs> but <laughs> there was a connection which ultimately started with the Tsetse. Um, and in the 1930s, when the British still had uh, colonies there in North Rhodesia, from 1931 to 1939, African villages were getting bit by tsetse and they were people were coming down with sleeping sickness and they were hiding these patients or the these victims of sleeping sickness from the British who were there the British were trying to basically trying to do an early epidemiological study of like what's causing sleeping sickness and they figured it was connected to tsetse flies but they needed more scientific data. So they were going out and doing a number of things, but one of them was going 
finding these patients where the in the villages they were being hidden from the they were actually game wardens they weren't they weren't doctors these were british game wardens going out that's really suspect and they would find these villagers who were being hidden by their families and they would take uh uh lymphatic fluid samples from behind their ears mm-hmm well, then this led to this belief by local African villagers that the British were actually white vampires stealing the blood <laughs> of the villagers <laughs> and then going and taking that blood and making some kind of um, medicinal concoction for their own uses. And that persisted, It's according to this uh, article, for the like 1930s and a little bit into World War II, and they had to have like a, a, a propaganda campaign to make sure that they weren't viewed as vampires. Well, I mean, to be fair, the British were vampires to a lot of these nations in more ways than one. But that is funny. So that wasn't directly the, the tzatzi that were being... It wasn't like tzatzi were biting people and then people in the middle of the night thought that they had been bitten by a vampire. It's just that the tzatzi led to an epi- epidemiological study that led to the British being viewed as vampires, <laughs> or at least some of them. That might be the best thing I've heard all year. That's amazing. Uh, but we're still in economic value. Uh, we haven't left that section yet. <laughs> so uh, That should have been under social value. Yeah, it should have been. I'm sorry. Good job. We'll just cut and... No, I don't know. Uh, you're not going to do that to me. <laughs> so the prevalence of CC flies has resulted in large eradication initiatives, uh, which take a variety of forms, including genetic studies. So that's one way that CT flies are actually feeding into the economy because they're creating jobs for people to do these things. Um, There's also widespread use of specialty fly traps, such as those used along rivers in Uganda, which cost about $240 each. Wow. According to an NPR news article, article I read, 17,500 of these traps were set up over a 1,500-square-mile area in the mid-2010s, which, if you add that up, amounts to about $4 million uh, to whoever is selling these traps. Yeah, that's just the traps. That's not even talking about the manpower to get those things up and set up, to have them checked, to have them replaced, or anything like that. Right. That's wild. Moving on to conservation. They are not extinct. Obviously not. They exist in 37 sub-Saharan African countries. So they are doing all right. There's not just like five flies in each country. (laughs) (laughs) I know they'd be celebrating in Africa if that were the case. So a case for tsetse flies has been argued by Armstrong and Blackmore in a 2017 paper entitled Tsetse Flies Should Remain in Protected Areas in KwaZulu-Natal. Um, which is in like the, um, uh, it's like on the eastern side of South Africa. Okay. Yeah. If if I'm wrong about that, I apologize. But that's what the map looked like to me. Uh, focusing on South Africa, they argue that the tsetse fly and the trypanosome protozoa are a part of the biodiversity of the region and must be protected like any other species from complete eradication. And their remaining argument focuses less on the role of the tsetse fly in the ecosystem, though 
as I said before, it may control be a control system for invasive species, but they focus more on the widespread negative effects uh, that sequential aerosol techniques, which is the main eradication uh, technique that is being suggested, um, the negative effects that that would have on the environment at large. And yeah, especially after what happened with DDT because of its widespread use, I can see how people would be hesitant. So this article actually mentions DDT and that DDT, I forget if it was used at one point to try and get rid of the tsetse in the area. It was primarily for mosquitoes carrying malaria. Uh, right. But... I mean, it may have impacted yeah. tsetse's, but I, I'm saying like throughout Africa, the, the primary use was to eliminate malaria carrying mosquitoes. Well, now I've forgotten whether or not it actually discussed DDT's effect on tsetse flies. So I'm just going to... It didn't happen. <laughs> oh, you're goofy. But the paper was concerned about the potential for the things that get rid of the tsetse flies, maybe temporarily, would possibly permanently get rid of the things that prey upon tsetse flies. So if there was a resurgence of tsetse in the area, they might no longer have any predators or fewer predators to control their population the way it currently is controlled. And that's, and that's always the struggle with conservation is, again, like I mentioned earlier, you know, tsetse flies deserve to be alive in their ecosystem. They have a role to play. And while we definitely want to protect human health, that is always a priority, we shouldn't do it at the cost of the environment. So if we eliminated these flies, we don't know what the repercussions would be. If we use certain chemicals to eliminate these flies, we don't know the effects it would have on the ecosystem balance, how it would potentially leave certain chemicals persisting in the environment that would continue to affect it and even get into things like the food and water supply and then adversely affect humans. I mean, that's kind of, that's, that's the issue we have with a lot of things. That's the, the issue with DDT. I mean, even though DDT was banned decades ago before we were born and i think its longest life was in was it in water or soil either way there's somewhere where it persists for many years but we're to a point where ddt has not been allowed to be used since before we were born it should be fully eradicated and yet there are still people alive we might even have it that have it in their systems even though they were not alive during the time that it, it was used that they were alive after it had been banned and fully phased out from use there are still people alive today in the U.S. who have tested and it has been found in their bodies. So some things are very persistent and they still have impacts on human health and safety. So it's one of those things where it's easy to go, let's do this thing and it's going to eliminate this problem without considering the additional risks that solution might cost us, you know? Yeah. They also mentioned uh, this article also... It was very much to the point, and I, I brought this up before, they are not arguing about not trying to minimize how many tsetse are in the environment, but simply not eradicating all of them. And so they, they do support other more localized uh, techniques, such as uh, sterile um, males being introduced into the environment to breed with the females, but then not producing the offspring, especially due to the fact that the 
unlike mosquitoes where hundreds of eggs or thousands of eggs are laid at any given time and then you just have mosquitoes everywhere, as we mentioned, these are very slowly reproducing species. So they, but they, they invest a lot, so they have a much better like success rate of becoming adults because with mosquitoes, even though you have mosquitoes laying those thousands of eggs, they have to lay those thousands of eggs because if they didn't, like all their babies would just get swallowed up by fish or uh, dragonfly larvae, which feast on them a lot. Like It's one of those things where that's how they guarantee that some of their babies survive to where these guys obviously invest very heavily in prenatal care. And uh, it, it helps them, you know, guarantee that they have some offspring that survive. Yes. And I think according to another article, the area that has been tested for minimizing, like trying to reduce the population of tsetse is something like 128,000 uh, square kilometers. But that only amounts to one and a half percent of the range of tsetse flies. Yep. So it's extremely difficult to imagine how to minimize on a large scale the population sizes of of tsetse across sub-saharan africa um it's it's a big it's a big undertaking that's like trying to eliminate all of the mosquitoes in north america not just the us north america like mexico canada all of it it's it's not it's not a reasonable goal and I have heard of people who are like, you know, we want to, like, there are countries or groups that have come out and said, we just want to fully eradicate them from everywhere in where we live, basically, because, of course, like I said, it's unreasonable to do it elsewhere. But, the, you know, again, that's the thing is a lot of people might feel that way, but it's not, one, it's not a reasonable goal, and two, it's not necessarily a healthy one either. Um, I think that while controlling the populations is obviously important, uh, at the same time, I think that I certainly hope that they're doing more research to find better ways to spot it in advance so that people can more easily be tested and figure out if they have it and also better treatments that are less risky and more effective at treating them, especially if they can only reach it to this, you know, by the second stage. I think that that's going to be what's really important because if we try to fully eradicate them, or even just majorly eradicate them, it's probably going to have some pretty detrimental effects on human health because it's going to adversely affect the environment. And even if we don't fully eradicate them, you know, anything that involves putting dangerous things into the environment is going to be harmful. You know, DDT is still used in some parts of the world. Unfortunately, there's a lot of DDT-resistant mosquitoes now because of it, but... DDT is still used, and while they do try to be more sparing and more careful in their use of it to make sure that it's not harming the environment, you know, the problem is is sometimes we don't see the issues until 20, 30, 40 years down the line, and by then it's too late. You've impacted thousands to millions of people. I mean... Not my generation, not my problem. <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> We're literally living in a generation that's dealing with the fallout of some of the pre-environmental movement issues. And dude, you knew my uncle. Uncle yeah. Steve. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, some people have some lifelong issues because of how they were treated at a younger age. And, you know, 
conservation is is a giant balancing act. How do we balance human existence and human civilization alongside nature? Conservation should never be about eradicating people, but it also shouldn't be about eradicating wildlife either. Because I did see that comment. Uh, what was it that the the Setsi fly is the perfect game warden because in its eradication of cattle and people, there were more spaces because I forget what I read a while back. This was years ago, but I remember reading about how this fly came into parts of Africa where it wasn't really abundant before it wiped out cattle. It wiped out people. And so a lot of native wildlife suddenly boomed. And the reason why certain preserves exist right now, while we have things like the Okavango Delta, which is known for its the massive amount of wildlife that flocks to it, the reason why these spaces exist and they're not developed over is because this fly came in and it made it very difficult for people to live there. But the problem is, is I understand how much people want to preserve these spaces, but at the same time, we shouldn't be cheering the devastation and suffering that happened to people because people were starving because they were losing their cattle or, or they were losing their livelihood. There were people dying of this sleeping uh, sickness and that's not an acceptable trade-off. Oh, yay, we have a healthy environment, but all these people suffer, suffered and died for it, but it's okay. But no, it's never okay. It's never okay to say that. And I was severely disappointed when I read that I think it was somebody from the World Wildlife Fund, the really big one with like the panda and stuff. They were the ones that said it. And I was like, that's disappointing because you basically just said it's okay to trade human health and safety to protect the environment. And that's never the case. Conservation is balance. We need to be balancing protecting wildlife and protecting people. If you can't do both, then it's not conservation. Conservation is balance. And that's a wrap for this episode about the Seatsy Fly. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. For this episode, I cite some information from the following organizations. The World Health Organization, the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, an article by Armstrong, an article by Armstrong and Blackmore titled Seatsy Fly Should Remain in Protected Areas in KwaZulu Natal. An article by Gooding and Craftser titled Seatsy Genetics contributions to biology, systematics, and control of tsetse flies, and finally, an NPR article called In the Fight Against Tsetse Flies, Blue is the New Black, with entomologist Steve Tor. Oh, and also, sorry, uh, since we did mention it, there was also the article Tsetse Visions, Narratives of Blood and Bugs in Northern Colonial Rhodesia, 1931-9, to by... Luis White. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach Kristen at her email, thenaturalist at thenaggingnaturalist.com, and check out her website at thenaggingnaturalist.com. <laughs> on social media, you can find The Nagging Naturalist on Facebook and Instagram, as well as on Twitter, at nag underscore naturalist. You can leave her reviews. <laughs> you can leave her reviews on Apple Podcasts and podchaser.com, to help support this podcast. If you love learning about wildlife and don't want to wait for another episode, check out some of these other wildlife podcasts. All Creatures. CritterCast. The Wildlife. Just the Zoo of Us. 
Animals to the Max. Varmints. Amazing Wildlife Podcast. The Casual Birder. What Are You Podcast. The Songbirding Podcast. The Cicada Lounge. Life, Death, and Taxonomy. And Strange Animals Podcast, which are all safe for work. And Keeper Chat is a great podcast, too. Though it's definitely not safe for work. <laughs> also, here are some really great podcasts you can check out that discuss other sciences or science in general. Petri Dish. Planthropology. Geekoscopy. Bald Scientist. Dear Grad Student. Better Than Human. More Than Just a Scientist. Curiosity Cake. Mad Scientist. What Are You Going to Do With That? Papa PhD. Breaking Math. Curiosity Killed the Rat. That's What I Call Science. And the Scientist Podcast with two T's at the end of Scientist. Some of these podcasts are and aren't safe for work, so be sure to double check if that's a concern. Also... I'm on a non-wildlife podcast called The Legend of Portalcast, which, discuss which discusses the world of Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. She'll be back next week with another species from the Zambesian-flooded grasslands. Thank you, Barry. You're welcome, Kristen. Bye, everyone. <laughs>